This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. What's going on, podcast people? Welcome to the Moranalytics Podcast. Today is Monday, June 25th, 2018. I, of course, am Patrick Moran. Coming up on today's show, I have a pair of really good guests that I'm excited to talk to. Headlighting the show is ESPN college sports reporter, and yes, also the daughter of famous sports broadcaster Kevin Harlan. Olivia Harlan becomes the latest talented sports journalist to come on the Moranalytics podcast. Olivia and I talk about her career, which is already well on the rise despite being just 25 years old. We talk about why her getting rejected by Northwestern for college may have turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to her. We talk about her famous bloodlines, her time covering the Atlanta Hawks, how she feels about working at ESPN, her engagement and upcoming wedding to Sam Decker of the Los Angeles Clippers, and much more. Immediately after that, I'll be joined by Matt Warren of Buffalo Rumblings. Anyone who's a Buffalo sports fan and or not a stranger to this podcast knows all about the crazy stuff that's been happening over at the Buffalo News Sports Department. Matt wrote a very in-depth story this past Friday about that situation that essentially went viral. It was well done and I have him on today's show to talk about it. So I'm not going to babble on anymore here at the top like I usually do. Let's get right to it. Here's the very beautiful, talented, and super cool Olivia Harlan, followed by the very not beautiful, but yes, talented and super cool Matt Warren. Okay, my guest today is an ESPN college sports reporter covering both football and now basketball too. She's also the daughter of one of sports' most recognizable broadcasting names, but make no mistake about it, she's already carving out one hell of a career path of her own. I'm talking about ESPN's Olivia Harlan. Olivia, thanks for taking some time. Great thrill to have you on the podcast today. Of course, Patrick. I'm excited to be on. I'm excited to have you. Let's start here. So you're born in Kansas City, like I said at the top, to some amazing bloodlines, your father's a famous sportscaster, Kevin Harlan. And on top of that, your grandfather is Bob Harlan, former president and CEO of the Green Bay Packers. You're one of four kids. I'm, listen, I'm sure you get asked this plenty. And I have to ask as well, what was it like growing up the daughter of a broadcaster, you know, and the granddaughter of an NFL team president? 
Well, I'll start by saying this out of the four kids, I'm the only one who ever even thought about working in sports. And Mm. my other three were smart enough to stay away. And as my dad would have liked it, he would have said, all four of you stay away. So what my life and my childhood was like was almost every Sunday, it felt like we were at a Packer or Chiefs game because my grandpa was the executive for 20 years and we'd go up to as many home games as we could. And then if we weren't there, we were at a Chiefs home game. Um, And my dad used to be the voice of the Chiefs for a long time before I was born. And then um, he still for CBS was covering the Chiefs very frequently. So once I started to get a little nibble of the business and I started thinking and I was a very outgoing kid and I thought, I want to do this. This is cool. This is like I I assumed everyone's dad worked on Sundays. I assumed everyone's (laughs) dad had summers off. I, I that's all I knew. And once I started saying that to him, he said, OK, if you're really serious about this, then I want you to see the behind the scenes. I want you to sit in the production truck in the parking lot during Chiefs games and you see how much hard work it takes from so many talented people to put this game on air. So I did. And I mean, I was fascinated by it. And I, I thought, OK, this is this isn't just hanging out on the field. This isn't just, you know, eating the free lunch in the press box. This is hard work. <laughs> And um, so I really I, I saw it backwards to forwards. And, and my dad wanted to make sure if I really was serious about it, I didn't just see the glamorous side. And I'm so thankful he did. Um, and my knowledge of the truck and the way the game goes on air is kind of unique. And I feel like it's helped me as a reporter. Did you get hooked on it right away as a kid? Because I mean, most kids, they barely even want to watch the game. You know what I mean? <laughs> You're behind the <laughs> scenes and everything. Was it really exciting for you or was it also kind of scary as well? Well, I had I had two career options I wanted to pursue. One was a, a sports broadcaster. You know, at the time, I don't think I settled in on sideline reporter or host or anything like that, but just a sports broadcaster or a country singer. And both are pretty lofty goals. Sure. And I narrowed in on one and I was starting to have some success with the sports broadcasting and the broadcasting in general. And I decided, OK, got to pick one dream here. <laughs> when you were a kid growing up, who were a couple of your favorite athletes? Well, I, I grew up in the Brett Favredom where there was nothing else to do on a Sunday but watch him. And I, I mean that seriously. If we were at a Chiefs game, you were still checking what Brett was doing on the road. Um, and I guess to me, that was the pinnacle of an NFL superstar. Um, but then on on the NBA side, Kevin Garnett was my favorite player to watch because my dad used to cover the Timberwolves and they kind of came to the Timberwolves at the same time, both named Kevin. They kind of had a a pretty sincere friendship. And so I just, I grew up thinking he was such a superstar. So I guess I'd say those two for familiarity more than anything. Did you enjoy playing any sports as a kid or for you, was it all about learning about it? Knowing ahead of time, like you said, you knew at a young age that this is what you were going to want to do when you got older. So was it all about that or did you actually like enjoy playing some sports as well? Oh, gosh, Patrick. No, there is such a reason I am. I am more on on the sidelines. I I'm just I didn't grow up an athletic person and I, I knew my place pretty early. I was always goalie on my soccer team because our team was so good. The ball never even came on that half of the field. <laughs> I, I was. I was a sad athlete, um, but it's funny. I always say now because I'll 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 play basketball now with my fiance in the off season, and and he's taught me some things. And I always wish I had been more competitive with basketball because I'm kind of tall and five eight, you know, for my for my 
size range and everything, I feel like I could have been all right. But no, I, I was much more kind of on the cerebral side of sports. <laughs> we'll talk about your fiance a little bit further in this interview. Now, in 2010, you enter and you win Miss Kansas Teen USA. First, yeah. I mean, what got you into wanting to do stuff like that? And obviously you were very successful at it. And what did that mean to you? Because, I mean, it was, it's not just a beauty pageant for teenagers. There's a lot more to it. What did it mean to you to win something like that? I am proud of it because Should be. um, I, I was applying to colleges. I was a sophomore in high school and um, a sophomore and junior. I can't remember. Um, and I, I went to my guidance counselor and I was applying to Ivy Leagues. I was applying to USC, Northwestern, Syracuse. I was applying to these tough schools. And I said to my guidance counselor at school, you know, what could I do to give myself a little edge on these applications? You know, I'm a 4.2 student. I'm in every school club. I'm, but I'm that there are a million kids who apply who are just like that. And she said, you know, you need one thing that jumps off the page, one thing that's a little different. And then as luck would have it, I saw this poster hanging in my high school and it said, you know, this, this pageant of which I had no experience or had never thought about. Um, none more so than just watching Miss Congeniality, the movie of Sandra Bullock. And I thought, okay, and I'm a very competitive person, Patrick, but I think where it didn't apply to sports, it then could be focused here. And I told my parents and they're like, oh no, you're, you're, you're better than that. You're smarter than that. You don't need to parade around in a bikini. And I said, well, listen to me where I'm going to win this. And I am going to win this if I'm doing it, where I'm going to win this is in the interview. I said, mm -hmm. I, I know I'm, I know I'm too smart for this and I, I know I can knock this down. And so, and they're like, okay. And on one hand, they're thinking, where did this kid get all this confidence? She's nuts. Um, but I did, and they were scared as anything. And I just wasn't, and I, I just, I trusted my brain and I, I trusted, I trusted that I could get myself through there. And so my first pageant ever had no idea what I was doing, um, I, I went up there and I won it. And I, I felt so proud of that small feat, mostly because it was so unknown. And then you go on to Miss Teen USA, which was held at Atlantis in the Bahamas. And I didn't even make top 15. And once I saw the girls who did make top 15, I quickly learned why. <laughs> and I, I, I was not uh, enhanced, let's say. And um, oh gosh, the whole thing. So I kind of left with a bitter taste in my mouth, but um the fact that I won my state on my first try was, it was, it was great. And I did a lot of, I did a lot of public speaking and, and stuff like that in my year as a title holder. So I got a lot out of it. Yeah. Cause that's the reason why I asked you is because I read that, you know, you were able to focus when, you know, on encouraging good health and education and young yeah. school children. So to me, that's, that's the impressive, well, you know, winning it period for your beauty is impressive, but so is the, uh, <laughs> the educational part that came with it. That's why I asked you, you know what I mean? So, yeah. And you know, the Miss Teen USA, which is like our version of the national championship is halfway through your reign. You know, you win in December, your state, and then you go in the summer to compete in Atlantis. And so you still have half a year where, you know, you're not competing anymore, but you still have this title. And I was so active in going to elementary schools, middle schools, um, I went to some VA hospitals. I, I sought out these appearances on my own because I thought, you know, if I can make someone's day by going into a hospital and taking a picture with them, you know, in my crown and, and sash, you know, which it's amazing that that can brighten someone's day. So I, I really had a good time with that part. Now, you end up attending the University of Georgia for college. 
Why did yep. you go there? And I know you mentioned a school earlier, but what were a couple of the <laughs> other schools that you considered going to? Well, I applied to 15 colleges and the only state school was Georgia. And I, I had no intention of going to a big, rowdy, fun school like that. Um, I had every intention of going to Northwestern, of which I did not get in, which broke my heart. Um, I was so convinced that was a school for me. I, I love Chicago. My family's in the Midwest. I They have such a great journalism school. And I thought that was a school for me. I didn't get in. I even appealed back. And so I didn't get in twice. <laughs> it, it was such a, a heartbreak. Um, but the ironic part is, and this is such a God wink in my eyes, that when I decided to go down to Georgia, when my dad and I were touring the campus, we were walking in the journalism school and we run into this man, Charlie McAlexander. My dad recognized his face and he's worked in the SEC forever. And he's now kind of in the fourth quarter of his career doing georgiadogs.com, the school's athletic website. And we just happened to be meeting him in the hallway. And he sets me up right away. He said, if you come here as a freshman in August, I'll make sure you have an internship with georgiadogs.com. So I thought, okay, you know, that's something I couldn't get at Syracuse. I couldn't get in there right away. That's something I couldn't get at USC right away. You know, they have such a hierarchy and you really have to fight, you know, to be a senior to be on that. And he said, as a freshman, I could be on that. So I thought, okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah. So I go to Georgia. He gets sick early. Um, I, 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 it was something small. He's, he's still in great health, um, but he gets sick and can't do the Friday web series preview of the Saturday Georgia game. So he gives that to me. He single-handedly gives that to me, um, which was, I, I was in no position to take that from him because I was a highly viewed, like three minute little preview of the Georgia game. And I did it and I put all my work into it and I learned a lot. Um, I shot it myself. I edited it myself. I put it up on the web myself and, and I was 18 yeah. and this went internationally. So that was a huge break for me. And it's funny now, as I look back in my career and I'm not even, I'm not even in the depths of it yet, but as I look back, there were so many little breaks like that, like running into him in the hallway, getting that when he couldn't. And, um, my gosh. And then when the phone rang with Fox, they were based in Atlanta and I could drive up from Athens. So there are so many times I realized there was such a reason I did not get into Northwestern that I'm now so thankful for. Yeah. Isn't it crazy how things work out sometimes because oh my you know, gosh. your yeah. ESPN colleague, Adam Schefter, I had him on the podcast before and yeah. you know, everyone knows him as this famous Michigan guy. And of course that's yeah. true, but here's the thing. Adam went to Michigan because he did not get into the schools that he applied to first. He applied at Penn and some other, a couple other Yale, Yale schools that he didn't get into. He ended up wow. in Michigan and obviously, you know, everything went on to work out beautifully for him, <laughs> yeah. but it's funny how things work out, isn't it? Oh, it, it definitely is. They always say, you know, there's, there's a reason for everything, but my gosh, was it hard to tell me then? <laughs> Cause I thought I was a wildcat. Yeah. So, and you mentioned this, so you're at, you're in college, you start doing sports reporting work, you know, you wrote for the, for the school's sports website and stuff like that. You also pledge a sorority, all this stuff. Yeah. And you still managed to get your degree in less than four years. How the hell did you manage to pull all that off? Well, I, I, I question that sometimes. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I graduated in three and a half years and I, I did join a sorority as a freshman, which I'm so glad I did. That was an awesome college experience. Um, I was the youngest person ever to serve on our council. <laughs> so wow. as, a, as a true freshman, I was our head of PR um, and that was a total honor. And so I was really ramping up with georgiadogs.com, which is owned by IMG Properties. 
And uh, Maria Taylor, the Georgia, the Georgia alum, who's now one of the biggest names with ESPN, she had left right before I had gotten there. And she was with IMG and georgiadogs.com in their infancy. And then I kind of took over when she left. So it's, it's funny that they cranked out these ESPN reporters from their little tiny little office in Athens. And, you know, Patrick, I covered way more than the glamorous sports. I covered equestrian. I covered golf. I covered I, I covered the swim and dive, which Georgia had a great swim and dive team and SEC championship at in Athens, which was awesome. Um, so I covered all our sports. But, yeah, about every day I'd, I'd go to class then I'd go to a, the football press conference and then I'd I'd go to the. And, and that was also a beauty that Atlanta media would come in for all of Georgia's big practices or open practices. And so I got a schmooze with the AJC people and the, the Fox people. And that was huge for me as well. We had some big name reporters coming through and that was, that was very exciting for me, but Oh my gosh, college is such a blur because I never slept. Believe me, I had my fun, but I, I, um, yeah, I, I was working for free for about 25 hours a week. And then I finished school as quick as I could as well. Well, it went on to be worth it. In 2013, you get a gig co-hosting a daily web series for the Green Bay Packers at training camp. And then you go on to become a sideline reporter for preseason games on the Packers TV network. How did that come about? And how did that ultimately help you, you know, later in your career, getting that experience? Well, it's it's funny. When I got the Packer preseason gig, which my dad does with Rich Gannon. So my dad had been on that for years with Rich and... Mm-hmm this is, I just got hired by ESPN and I was, I was ironically enough going on. Um, and this was my first fall out of college and I had just gotten the news. ESPN was going to hire me. I was going down to Puerto Rico for a friend of mine's birthday. So I'm with about six girls who know nothing about sports and we're down in Puerto Rico. And I get the call from my agent that ESPN was not only going to hire me, but they were going to put me on their three o'clock ABC ESPN game. I I could not believe it. Um, So, you know, I order a margarita, I celebrate, and then we have a great weekend. I come back home and my parents had put out kind of on their kitchen table, welcome to the Packer broadcasting family. And I said, what's this? And they said, you've been offered to do the Packer preseason games on sideline. And I, I, I truly, Patrick, I could not believe it. I was like, I, I don't deserve all this. This is all coming so quickly. I, all this. And my dad said, Olivia, I promise you, I didn't even make a call. Mm. He said they reached out to me because they had heard about the ESPN hire. They knew you were going to be local for a while um, in Wisconsin. And then, of course, I'd already worked for them doing the web series. So, oh, my gosh, talk about a humbling moment because I thought I, uh, so much is expected of me now. But it was it was really amazing. I just did the one season because then um, my college football kind of encroached upon the end of preseason. But it was amazing. You also have worked at Fox Sports South covering the Atlanta Hawks. Kind of the same question here. How did that opportunity come about getting that job? What did you get out of it? And then from there, you also started covering college football for Fox Sports. How, how different is it for you personally and professionally, the difference between covering college football and college basketball? This is kind of a loaded question here, a lot to unpack. So I apologize because <laughs> I also do want to know about the Atlanta Hawks gig as well. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll start there. And that's a year before this um, Packer gig and the ESPN gig came around. So this was my senior year of college. I was now I had invented a whole game day show, I called it on GeorgiaDogs.com. 
it had never existed before. So I said, Saturday mornings, I'm going to go to the field in Sanford Stadium. I'm going to stand on the 50-yard line, and I'm going to tape a total preview of that day's game. I'm going to write the script. I'm going to cut in highlights. If I'm talking about a certain player, I'm going to lace that in there. I'm going to edit it at the stadium and put it on about two hours before kickoff. And I, I had to get that approved by so many people. And they said, okay, you know, thinking, no, sure. That's pretty innocuous request, I guess. And, um, but it totally took off. So I was so, I was just on cloud nine with that. And then about two weeks into the football season, so I'd only had two weeks of doing this and I was graduating in December. I get a call from Fox that they had seen my reel on YouTube and they would like me to come in for an interview. And they didn't really specify which. And to this day, I think I owe my whole career to these two men, Jeff Gunther and Randy Stevens with Fox Sports South, because they took a total gamble on me. And they offered me in that one meeting an NBA sideline gig, a college football sideline gig, and a weekly studio show taped in Atlanta with wow. all the bells and whistles. And you were still in college? Um, I was still in college. And on God. my way out of this meeting, I'm shaking hands with Randy Stevens, the EP at Fox Sports South. And I said, you know, I just want to be totally transparent here. They, they never asked for any paperwork, no resume, nothing. It was just an interview. And I said, you know, I, I still am a student at University of Georgia. And he goes, oh, gosh, no, we didn't know that. Well, <laughs> can you make it work? And I said, yeah, I can make it work. So here I am, you know, trying to finish out my last semester, which I've piled on more hours than I should have already had because I wanted to graduate. And I had to leave on Thursday nights to go to my SEC football game and have Friday meetings with the coaches. And I'll never forget, I had South Carolina and Steve Spurrier, is he's still the coach and he, we're shaking hands on the way out. And he says, now, Olivia, where do you go to college? And I said, oh, yeah, I, I went to Georgia. <laughs> I, I didn't tell him I really had a final on Monday. You know, I'm, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm still very much a student. But I I don't know. I, I don't know if that can always happen or will happen. I really feel like it was a weird paradox of a couple situations. But I really did. And again, going back to the not getting in Northwestern, it's just right place, right time. And um, I, I, I believe there's so much more at play here than my hard work. I worked incredibly hard to get there, but there's kind of a lot of stars aligning too. Do you have a lot of fun covering the Atlanta Hawks? I mean, it's an NBA team, you know, you've done mainly college stuff. Oh my gosh. I loved it. And uh, my first year covering the Hawks was our 60 win season. We went to the Eastern conference finals to lose to Cleveland and it, it was so unprecedented and here I am just thinking, oh, yeah, NBA is great. What a, what a nice lifestyle. Here we are getting on the charter. Here we are checking in the four seasons. Here we are doing this. We win every night. You know, it's it felt like such a dream. And my dad, who had covered the Timberwolves in their first couple of years, which were rough, mm -hmm. he said, Olivia, believe me, you haven't covered the NBA till you're about, you know, 12 and 30. <laughs> and everyone's not even wanting to come back from all-star break and everyone hates each other and all that. And he said, that's the NBA. And, um, you know, he's right. It's funny. I, I was just floating on a cloud and the team was great. We had five all-stars that year, Al Horford, Kyle Corver, Jeff Teague. I mean, it was such a great team to cover. And then the team kind of blew up and they, they had to trade a bunch of pieces and the next season was, wasn't as great. And then the third and final season, really wasn't as great, but still made the playoffs, all that. Um, so, you know, my first year not covering the Hawks, they didn't make the playoffs. And I, I, it, I felt so invested. I felt so sad. I, I couldn't believe it. You know, I had seen them have such a run 
and then to see it go away. And then, you know, as of course now Mike Budenholzer is gone, he's the head coach of the Bucks. And then really the only player left from that first team I covered is Kent Bazemore and Dennis Schroeder, who now may soon be gone. So it's just sad. I, I feel like this, this, we had this tiny dynasty for like two years and um, it was an honor to be a part of. I, I just lived and breathed that team and they were such a classy, kind group of guys. Do you hate LeBron because he cost you a chance to cover an NBA finals? <laughs> well, I wouldn't have covered it anyways. You know, it goes to the True. network at that point. But I would have done the pregame and postgame. Yeah, show that's us. what I meant. So, yeah, it, so yeah. he, he cost you. Yeah. Oh, for sure. But no, I, I am a huge LeBron James fan. So don't get that twisted. <laughs> <laughs> What's it like working at ESPN? I mean, people, kids who want to get into sports casting, adults who want to do it. You know, what's that like for you? Well, believe me, Patrick, I never take it for granted. Um, anytime, you know, before a game and they wire you up and they hand you the mic and I always get a chill when I hold that ESPN mic flag. It's it's such an honor because I think of all the men and women I've seen do it before. And mm-hmm. it's it's crazy. And even the, still now, the, the current reporters and broadcasters I look up to, that they are my coworkers, that they are my peers. I truly can't believe that. But I'm I think the biggest you know, thing of success in this business is longevity. So I just, I always say, I want to be around for a long time. I want to, I want to perfect my craft. You know, I'm not, I'm not coming up for the short rise. Um, and I really do. And I, I've learned that from my dad, just longevity and just still having a job after however many years is the biggest reward. You're becoming one of the top sideline reporters in the game over the past few years, man or woman. I'm confident in general you get treated fairly, but I'm sure you've had difficulties as well. You know, working in an industry that's mostly dominated by males, does it ever feel like as a woman, and I've asked a couple other women I've had on this podcast, that you get, you know, it's unfair that you have, it seems like you have more to prove in the journalism industry being a woman, especially when it comes to those higher end jobs. Would you agree? Well, I think everyone kind of questions why you're there. Um, and, and I mean that in a way of, are you here to be on TV or are you here because you love the game mm-hmm. or are you, are you just kind of a competitive person that wants to beat out other people or what you're doing, which, you know, nothing wrong with that either. And um, I did a I did a college basketball game this year with Tom Crean, the former Indiana coach and now Georgia coach. And this was before is about a week before he was named the Georgia coach. So it's really fun. I got to do a game with him right before and he went to Bristol after to do some studio. And he said, Olivia, I, I'm I'm not bullshitting you. I'm telling everyone you are smart at basketball. He's like, you ask like very savvy basketball questions. You're like, you, you get it. And he said, I, and as a former coach saying that, he said, I, I do not say that lightly because I've heard every bad question yeah. in the book. And that to me was like the biggest mark of approval. I thought, oh my gosh, if a former coach is saying that I am just basketball smart, I'm thrilled. That's all I need to hear. And so it's, it's stuff like that. And word of mouth, I think anyone I've worked with knows, you no, know, she's in it for the long haul. She's in it for the love of the game. She respects coaches like crazy. I do. I And I have such a respect for athletic directors and the whole staff because the behind the scenes and the front office work is just as admirable as what they're doing on the field. So I, I have a whole uh, process respect um, when it comes to any program pro or, or college. Um, So yeah, I, I, and, and also to answer your question, I feel like I sit on the shoulders of giants. I, I feel like the battle was won before I even entered the game. So 
I don't think anyone's shocked to see a female sideline reporter. You almost expect it now. Right. Um, and then it's, it's just amazing that this role has been carved out. And then in the booth as well, you have Doris Burke, you have Beth Moens. I mean, it's, it's, it's such an expanding role, but um, I almost feel guilty saying this, but I don't feel any um, prejudice or discrimination for being a woman in sports because so many women have done it and done it so well before me. Oh, you said it absolutely perfect. Let me ask you this, and I'm sure you consider it a blessing to be able to do either sport, but preference-wise, do you like covering football or basketball more, or is it all the same for you? Um, You know, it's funny. I get in the mood when it's that time of year. It's like an animal going into whatever cycle <laughs> they're supposed to hit that year. When the weather starts to get a little chilly and you smell the smell of the grill and the loud kind of football <laughs> stadium right. music. I mean, all I want to do is be in a football stadium um, on Saturdays and Sundays. I, it just seems so right. But then as the weather continues to get colder and then you start kind of easing into basketball season, it, that feels so right. And the, it's, it's such a different sport, especially the NBA. The NBA is so flashy and glamorous and the hip hop music and the, the fancy people sitting courtside and all that. And then college basketball, again, such a different animal, but it just, it seems right in its season. So I don't know if I can answer that. I will say selfishly, I like the length of basketball games more. Um, college football games are so dang long. And by the end of that fourth quarter, my back's hurting, I'm sweating. It's, you know, it's, it's a whole thing and you're going against the elements outside. And, um, Oh, I've had some of the coldest games, I mean, to where I can't feel anything when I'm walking off the field. So it's, I guess basketball is easier in terms of covering, in terms of length and the elements. Anyone who knows you or anyone who's seen your work or is listening to this interview right now, they know that you've earned your keep in this industry in every way possible at this point. But I'm sure at least now and then you get some critics and haters who think, you know what? You're only at this position where you're at because of who your dad is. How do you handle idiots who say stupid shit like that? Well, it, it does. Um, it does annoy me because I feel like, well, come on now. I've worked so hard and I'm not the first child of an announcer to that, get into right. it, you know? So I, but I feel like being a woman, it, it all kind of comes into play. Um, I think my thing that I hang my hat on is that I've never worked for the same network as my dad. And he's never made a call on my behalf. Truly, he he swears by it. He said, I have never made one call on your behalf or chalked you up or anything. And in fact, when I introduce myself to people um, in the business, I always extend my hand and say, hi, I'm Olivia. I I, I leave out my last name um, for that reason. So it's it's something I'm so proud of making it the way I did. Now, I'm not saying I would have made it this early without my dad because I had my dad as a coach. Sure. You know, I we, we, I would do my tapes on georgiadogs.com and afterwards we'd watch it 10 times and he'd go over voice. He'd go over vernacular. He'd go over every, so, I mean, I had that as a total advantage. Um, so to say I did it all on my own is not true. Um, I I had, no child does it on their own, right? The national sportscaster of the year as a dad, you know, I, so I, I have that going for me and still to this day, I'll, I'll send him my halftime interviews because usually he's in his NFL meetings on Saturdays when I'm doing my games. So I'll, I'll send him the links to it and he'll watch and he'll say, you know, steady your voice, take a deep breath before the question. He'll give me kind of those, those tips still to this day, even when I don't ask for it. (laughs) (laughs) 
What's your take on Twitter and social media in general? Because obviously it serves a good purpose for anyone, especially in sports media, you know, in this age of instant news and stuff like that. But it also comes with a major downside because like I mentioned, there's a portion of people who are just cruel and crude as could be. So generally speaking, what's your attitude towards social media platforms? You know, my dad and I just got in a pretty heated discussion about this like two days ago because he is pretty much off of it unless he retweets something from one of his networks. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just lives in general very privately. I don't. And a lot of people in my generation and in my profession don't. It's kind of like our life is out there. I, I like I, I put up things all the time of what I'm doing or my dog or, or us at games or the people I work with. And I I like that. I think it's it's fun to see. I like seeing other people do the same. And I think there's, it's definitely, it can be a, a weapon of mass destruction or it can be your greatest tool. Um, I don't think I'm, I've always, I, there are probably things I would regret saying, or when I stand up for myself, I think sometimes you get a little passionate and you might kind of come after someone in a way that might be unfair. But like just last night, I tweeted something about the draft and someone tweeted back, go back in the kitchen. And I was Jesus. with my my future in-laws and my fiance, and they're all packed <laughs> up because they know I have no skills in the kitchen. And they're <laughs> like, this, this guy, he he's paying you a compliment by saying that. So, <laughs> um, no, it's just, it's funny and it'll never end and you're never going to win. And my, my fiance and I go back and forth on that all the time because I, I just say, you're not going to win that battle. I mean, don't go for it. I mean, if it's the, the, my biggest thing, Patrick, and I'll, without rambling on and on about this, but if I do a report on TV and someone says, you know, you said he had, um, you know, 12 yards per rush and it's really 11, I'll go back because I'm a stickler for facts. So I, I, I like I will not mess up a fact. So I'll go back and I'll find, you know, the source or I'll, I'll screenshot the stat sheet or something. So I, I refuse to be wrong there. Now I could ask a dumb question. I could mess up. I could stutter my words, but I'm not going to mess up a fact. So I get, I get mad when people point out something like that. And more times than not, Patrick, they come back at you. Oh my gosh. So sorry. Great work. <laughs> it's, it's usually that. Yeah. Doing what you do at, you know, that's such a young age. Cause you are young to be where yeah. you're at in this industry right now. Now, obviously, the disadvantage of that would be, you know, you're still learning and getting on the job experience. Of course, that's natural with the amount of time you've done it. You know, while I think the advantage is, you know, like like someone like your dad or many reporters that are, you know, significantly older than these athletes may not be able to relate to today's athlete. Whereas you, you know, you're that age of a lot of these athletes. So you probably they probably find you more relatable and vice versa. Would you agree? Well, and that's an advantage and disadvantage when we interview players and this goes for college football or NBA, because let's face it, they're about the same age. Mm-hmm. Um, I I find that I can kind of relate to them. And if we're in the locker room, I can I I can understand like I'll know what song they're listening to, where I think like my dad never would. So <laughs> it's it, that's a small example. But I, I take that with a grain of salt because I so badly want to be seen as. A, a professional buttoned up reporter. And so I've never tried to mix that line of being buddy, buddy, but also that being said, there are certain players who I've covered now for three or four years in college football. And, you know, when they're walking off on senior day that they'll give me a hug. And I, and I so appreciate that. And I feel older than them. And at times I'm not, mm-hmm. um, 
but I mean, you, you see Holly Rowe, Holly Rowe has intimate relationships with so many players and, and their families. And you see him hug on interviews on TV. And so, I mean, it's, it's not like it's an age thing. It's, it's kind of a, I don't know. And the, and then same thing with the coaches. I know I'm the age of some of their daughters and that's kind of odd, but I, I think they, they feel a certain, you know, they look at me like I am their daughter because they want to make sure they're not disrespecting me or, or that they'd want their daughter to be treated the same. So I don't know. It's, it's a funny line, but whenever I tell someone I'm 25, they can't believe it. And I, I don't know if I should be offended, but they're always like, I thought you were at least 30. <laughs> you mentioned coaches. So speaking of coaches from the work you do, are there one or two of them that make your job more challenging? Like for an example, pops in San Antonio, I couldn't imagine having to cover oh. him daily. You know what I mean? The way he is, he'd, he'd probably make your life a living hell if you had to cover him every day. Are there one or two coaches that you deal with that you're like, oh, you're making my job much harder than I want it to be? Well, I think who has the hardest job in the country are the beat writers at Alabama and the beat writers with the Spurs yes. because they're the ones who get their ass chewed after a, a, a loss and stuff. And But no, and I, I've I've met Pop as a before I was in the business as my dad's friend, my dad's covered him forever. And, you know, it was, it was before a game and he's talking to me and Jamie Maggio was the sideline reporter of this game. I'll never forget it. And he says, you know, Jamie, just ask me two questions. What do you like in the first half? What do you want to see in the second? And she's like, okay. And it's kind of funny. And I don't know why we just, we would give him that hall pass, but that's the only coach I would let dictate my questions. Cause <laughs> I would hate, I would hate the wrath of pop. Um, I've never interviewed him. So um, but I do know if I ever do, I'm saying, what do you like in the first half? What do you want to see in the second? <laughs> what are your long-term <laughs> goals with sports reporting? Do you have a set vision right now, your long-term goals, or is that still to be determined? No, I think I think to be around. I always say I'm, I'm living my dream job. If I can hold on to it for 20 years or more, I'm that success. And maybe I'll transition. Maybe I'll you know move into studio at some point. Maybe I'd move into news even at some point. I don't know. But I, I just want to be around. I feel like if you can hang on and if you can compete with the changing business as it does always change and compete against people who are better and younger than you, I, I consider that success. And one day when I have kids, I want them to see me working. I want them to see me on TV. I want them to um, see me working throughout the week. I, I feel like that's such a, such an admirable thing to see both parents working. Don't go in the news. Stay in sports. You're born <laughs> well, for news, sports. News is such a downer, isn't it? Yeah. Stay in sports. Yeah. I like you much better and with sports. Now you I interned, <laughs> I interned in news and, and it's so hard. You have to go out and seek news and you have to go out and find it. And sports, you know, sports comes to you. I like that. You got too nice of good of a personality to be depressing me with sad news. So stay with <laughs> sports. Now you mentioned okay. your fiance a couple times. In 2016, you meet and begin a relationship with now current Los Angeles Clipper, Sam Decker. Give up the details. How did you guys meet? Well, yeah, now we're, I think, 20 days away from our wedding. Yep, so I'm going to get on it, that too, for sure. Yeah, yeah how'd you guys really meet? Happened, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, I was covering the Hawks. I was living in Atlanta and I was working ESPN College Football and life was good. And I had a great group of girlfriends in town and I was so busy. I was in my apartment, you know, just a handful of nights. And I kind of, I, I lived on Jimmy John's and red wine and life was good. <laughs> and then my, my good friend texts me and she says, Oh my gosh, I don't know how I haven't thought about this before, but I think I have the perfect guy for you. 
I say, oh, I don't have time to date. I don't want to date. Any guy who I would try to date would not understand my business. This would be a mess. And she goes, I think I have someone who would understand your business. And she says, it's Sam Decker. And I know right away who that is because I love Wisconsin sports and he's a legend in the state. And I, I'm like, heck no. I said, one, my dad would kill me. Two, I can't date an athlete. And three, how am I supposed to date someone in Houston? He was with the Rockets at the time. And mm-hmm. he said, well, ignore all that because he's perfect for you. He, he has such a nice family. He loves the Packers. You guys have so much in common. And I said, Anna, you just described everyone in the state of Wisconsin. Everyone's got a nice family and everyone loves the Packers. That doesn't narrow it down. Right. And I said, I, I just can't. I can't date an NBA player covering the NBA. And I, I in general, I, I just can't. She said, well, too bad. I just gave him your number. He's going to call you. I was like, no. <laughs> so he does. I ignored the call. He texts me. I took a week to respond. And then finally, I must have been bored one night. And I thought, OK, I'll text that guy back. And then it just took off. He was so funny and charming. And I thought, oh, yeah, classic. Of course, he's funny and charming and all this. And and anyway, so our first date, when he asked me on a date, I was coming through Houston, actually. And the Packers were playing. And it was week two of their season, I think. And um, it was an awful loss at the Vikings. I'll never forget it. And we go to watch a Packer game. because that's, that's harmless. Right. And oh my gosh, we hit it off. And I think I I thank the Packers for giving us that easy first date because we just so needed it. And then we could commiserate together over the loss. (laughs) And um, it was awesome. And then our second date was a Kanye West concert because we love Kanye West. And then our third date was a nice dinner at a steakhouse. And I think by date three, we decided we wanted to marry each other because we were, I mean, we, it's I say this now with such confidence because we are getting married, but he is without a doubt my soulmate. He is perfect for me, and I feel like I'm perfect for him. And um, he's he's just the best. He's salt of the earth, good Midwestern boy. He he leads a pretty simple life, and and we we spend our off season now in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, um, living very under the radar. And um, you know we just go to dive bars for one dollar beers and hang out with yes. his family and my family, and we're we're very simple. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. So he proposes last year. What kind of proposal are we talking? Was it something public? Was it something nice and quiet? How did that go? Well, I- it was it was very quiet. And don't tell him this, but I I kind of liked his plan B better. Yeah. Uh, he told me about a week after the proposal. It was it was just us. I I had no makeup on. I was in UGG boots, which I still t- to this day I hate those UGG boots because I <laughs> envisioned getting proposed to in a nice outfit. And, um, it was just us very quiet, very low key and very unexpected. Um, I, I felt like in general it was coming that summer, but he did it so early. And he said, I just, I, I could not wait another second. And as it turned out, my grandfather died a couple weeks later and I'm, he was our first call. So I'm really glad that he, he knew that we got engaged. Um, so that was big, but it turns out his plan B was all the fireworks and the jazz and everything. It was going to be on the 50 yard line at Lambeau field. Wow. And during the summer, you know, and have my parents run out and surprise us and all our siblings and all that. And I have like, Oh, why'd you tell me that? I wish that I did. <laughs> I know. Um, but it was, it was just like our relationship is, which is very personal, very private, very us. And, um, it, it was, it was very perfect. I will say too, our first time that we said, I love you was at Lambeau field, I think a month after dating. And it was, it was Dallas at green Bay and green Bay won that game. I've read something incredible. Now, now you and Sam, 
in lieu of wedding gifts, ask people to donate to the Children's Cancer Family Foundation. I mean, obviously, that's an amazing thing. What was the inspiration for that? Well, we've been involved now, um, and we we year round fundraise with them. And I'm on their board of directors now. I just I just got voted on this past year, and I'm really excited about that. Um, and I am see their gala with James Jones, the former Packer. We we raised a hundred thousand in one night at the gala, and then. Sam and I were going through the wedding planning process and then, you know, step five or six or whatever it is, is go register for gifts. And we kind of looked at each other and we kind of felt silly doing that. I, I was like, I feel like who are we to ask people to give us stuff? Right. You know, it's, and, and we had just been traded from Houston to LA had just gotten rid of all this stuff. And I, I just, I was like, I don't want one more thing. I really don't. I just, I, and I thought, let's think of something more creative. And I thought, well, let's do CTFF. Let's let's start a separate fundraiser for that. We'll call it like the Harlan Decker wedding something. Because like you mentioned earlier, my grandfather is a legend in this state. And the name Harlan is revered in this state. I'm so proud of that. And then Sam Decker is as big a sports personality as you can find in the state. Besides, you know, Frank Kaminsky or Aaron Rodgers or some of that. But so it's it, the the two last names on this wedding alone got people's attention and then the fact that we could use it as a platform to raise some money just seemed so obvious so we did that and Patrick we started with a goal of fifteen thousand dollars we blew past that and then our second goal was fifty thousand and I really I I thought that was too lofty I did not think we'd hit it and just last week we hit 50. That's amazing it really is. Yeah we're we're thrilled people here are so generous. Yeah that that's incredible. Now, in 2017, and you mentioned that Sam got traded from Houston to L.A., how did that, if at all, affect things off the court? And what I mean is this, you know, sports fans, we watch the games and we follow our favorite teams, but not everyone realizes the effect that being, you know, a free agent or leaving or getting traded somewhere, you know, during the season, that it brings so many adjustments. You know what I mean? Because you pick up and one day you're here and the next day you're there, especially in a trade, like I said, because you're not usually picking the next place that you're going to live. So how has that adjustment been for you? And obviously for Sam. It was really, really tough, Patrick. And to also put it in perspective, we had just gotten engaged. We had just gotten a house and we were, we were renting a house, but we were locked into a year lease Mm -hmm. in Houston and um, by the way, if you ever want to save a dollar, move to Houston. Their property value is incredible. We had this huge house with a pool for nothing. Yeah. And then we moved to L.A. and had such sticker shock as two Midwestern <laughs> kids. And, and we're both very frugal, too. So put that into it. And oh, my gosh, we were, we were amazed at how little we could get in L.A. But yeah, and, and we had truly the night before he was traded. Um, like I mentioned earlier, my, my grandfather had passed on a Wednesday, Sam was traded on a Thursday and we were on a flight to LA never to come back to our house that we had just totally nested and moved in and hung the last picture frame up. We were gone on a Friday. So it was just a lot of change at once. And I kept having to tell myself, you know, we knew this could happen. This is what we signed up for. We always knew a trade was possible, but my gosh, did we love Houston? Just we had we had good friends there and the coaching staff was awesome. And I was friends with the coaches' wives and the players' wives and everything had seemed so perfect. And um, this trade really came out of nowhere. So um, it was hard. It was very hard, more so for me. And I think in the long term for Sam 
And then I also, I was still planning on doing some work with Fox Sports South while living in Houston, flying in once a week and doing the ACC show. So I had to let go of that, which was really hard for me. I couldn't do that from LA. And, um, and then I was still going to pick up a couple of Hawks games after football season. So here I am 24 and I had to quit two of my three jobs and I'm such a proud working person. And for me, that just killed me, Patrick. And, and we kept saying, okay, something will come ESPN will offer you some basketball. You know, you're, you're not going to be unemployed after football season. And that was my greatest fear. I thought, what am I supposed to do after my last bowl game? I'm going to sit around and twiddle my thumbs and go crazy. And, um, sure enough, ESPN offered me college basketball that season. And again, just timing working out so perfectly. So, you know, it worked out great that I could leave the NBA right when we got engaged and, and not that I would cover his games, but I didn't want much crossover. I wanted us to be doing our own thing. And, you know, I've never covered one of Sam's games and I've never interviewed Sam. And I think that's kind of a misconception that that's must, that must be how we met. And it couldn't be further from the truth. (laughs) Well, I'm glad everything's working out. Okay, so here's how I end every interview, okay? I'm going to have a little mini lightning round, and all I do is ask you a handful of random questions, not too much deep thinking involved, whatever the first thing that pops in your head, just blurt it out, all right? Cool? Okay. All right, favorite athlete that you've interviewed? Mm, Ken Bazemore, Such, such a great guy and so funny. Favorite city to visit? Uh, oh gosh, that's hard. Um, Boston. Okay. Do you have a favorite sports movie? Mm, Remember the Titans. Good one. Now you kind of answered this earlier, so I'm going to ask you a a follow-up on this. My question was, if you had never got involved in journalism or reporting in any capacity, what do you think you may have wanted to do with your life? Now, you mentioned being a country singer earlier, so I'm going to assume that's your answer. So yeah, I'll, let, me ask you, answer. let me ask you this. What is it about country music that you love so much? Well, it's also blues. I grew up in Kansas City where jazz is, you know, sure. between Memphis and Kansas City, people assume those two are the birthplaces of jazz. And I love big, sultry woman jazz voices um, like Etta James, Ella Fitzgerald, and I... So I, I grew up listening to that. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess blues and jazz are my favorite genres to sing. Okay. Second, last question here. If Twitter were to send you a note and say, hey, Olivia, you're only allowed to follow one person on Twitter now and one person only, who would it be and why? This is very hard. Um, and it would have to be a sports person because that's just the best way to get your sports news. Mm-hmm. And you know who's a great Twitter follow for college football is CBS's Dennis Dodd. I really like following him. Um, and then maybe Brian Windhorse with the NBA or or Wojnowski or, you know, I, it'd have to be some of those like top tier sports follows. But I'll go with Dennis Dodd. OK, last question here. Three dinner guests, any era drinks, maybe a glass of wine or whatever, dead or alive, who you got? Brett Favre. Okay. Vince Lombardi. (laughs) God, you really are a Packers fan. Yeah, and Bart (laughs) Starr. Perfect. Just because I know all three of those men would love a couple cocktails and have some stories. Sure. All right, well done. Olivia Harlan, everybody. Olivia, thanks for your time. It was so much fun talking to you today. I'm a big fan, and I really hope continued success for you. You deserve it. Thanks again for doing the show. 
Thanks so much, Patrick. I had fun. Okay, that was Olivia Harlan from ESPN. Right now, I'm joined by Matt Warren of Buffalo Rumblings, part of the SB Nation umbrella. I got Matt on the pod because he wrote an incredible story on Friday that really dug into everything that's been happening at the Buffalo News Sports Department recently. Not only did he put together this piece brilliantly, but he talked to almost all the parties involved, most of whom spoke on the record for the first time. So first of all, Matt, thanks for jumping on the podcast today. How you doing? Uh, no problem. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing good. Now, you know, great. for people that don't know, I've known you for a while. Well, not known you, known you, but, you know, we've been friends on Twitter for a while. And I've always followed Buffalo Rumblings, and you've always done a good job there. It's a great website, and, you know, a lot of good Bills news. But, man, this really caught a lot of people by surprise, you writing this. Because, like I said, I don't think anyone really saw it coming, and no one had really talked to the parties, you know, involved in it. So, first of all, like I said, congrats on a great story. And it was well-received. You got many compliments and retweets. Did you think that that was going to happen ahead of time? Uh, yeah, actually, I did, honestly. Um, one of the things that uh, about the whole story was that like nobody was covering it. Like I know you were talking about it with people on your podcast, but but as you just said in that um, in that very nice statement you just made about me, like nobody had really gone and talked to all the parties concerned. And, you know, it wasn't being covered in, in the local media. And so I just, uh, I looked at it as a void. And you know, when it was Jerry Sullivan and Bucky Gleason and John Vogel and when all those guys left, I didn't really do anything except for kind of, you know, take notice of it like mm-hmm. a lot of people did. But it was when Tim Graham walked away that I, I kind of thought to myself, you know, something is going on here and something is happening. And so that's when I reached out to Tim first and uh, and got in touch with all the other guys. And it kind of it kind of grew from there. But I just it felt like some something was going on and nobody was really telling the story. And I felt like. Like I was close enough where I talked to a couple of those guys and you know, I've, I've chatted with Tim several times, but like I was close enough to the story where I could do it justice, but also far enough away. You know, I'm not looking to get a job with the Buffalo News or partner with them in any way. So I felt like I could tell the story objectively from both sides and, you know, and get in touch with the people I needed to get in touch with. And, and that's pretty much what happened. How long did it take you to put together this story? Because, you know, unlike writing a Josh Allen piece or something like that, you know, that's the typical thing that Buffalo Rumleys would cover. Mm. This is not a story that you put together in an hour or two. A lot of interviews, a lot of research, you know, a lot of things go into it. So how long did it take you to put this together? Right. So from start to finish, it was about a week. I um, I published it on Friday morning. I think I talked to Tim the previous Friday or or something like that. And uh, yeah, it took a lot of time. It was, um, I think it was a dozen interviews or maybe more than that, if you include follow-ups, you know, and each one of them was like 25 minutes or 45 minutes in some cases. And then, you know, you're listening back and you're, you're transcribing like the important things and then, you know, confirming things with other sources. And like, it just, it took, it did take a long time, but I felt like it was important enough that because I didn't want anybody to to come out looking bad in, in the article because I screwed up, you know, if, if, if someone was going to be assigned blame or if somebody was going to, to deal with some crap because of it, I wanted it to be because that's what happened. And, you know, especially when you're dealing with, with media members, they all know what they're, what they're doing. And so like the guys that got released or sorry, the guys that were bought out or left, like they obviously have an agenda when they're talking to me. Sure. Uh, the people that are at the Buffalo news obviously have an agenda when they're talking to me. So trying to kind of, you know, split it down the middle and, and figure out where the actual 
truth is, I think was was a little bit, I mean, it, it was time consuming, making sure that you're double checking and triple checking and doing all that stuff and make sure you're not getting played by other side. Let me reset the story too, by the way, because there are some people who listen to this podcast who aren't necessarily Buffalo sports fans and they might be hearing about this for the first time. What's going on at the Buffalo News Sports Department over the last month or so where that several veterans have left for a variety of reasons, you know, ranging from buyouts to just not wanting to be a part of the paper anymore. And what <laughs> Matt did is break it down because, like I said, there's been a lot of rumors and speculation as to what happened and why everything happened. And like I said, you did a really good job of breaking it down and giving people, like I, I mentioned, a very unbiased and thorough examination of what happened with direct on the record quotes from many of the parties involved. Let me ask you this too. Is this the first time that you've done like this type of story? Well, it's the first capital J journalism story I've done. I mean, I've interviewed people before I've, you know, I've put together some stories on Bob Kalsu and talked with his family members and, you know, heard, listened to their stories and mm-hmm. typed those up. And, you know, I've interviewed guys before, but this is the first time that I've done the kind of, you know, the fact checking and, and, and kind of all that stuff. And um, so, yeah, that was a di- that was a departure for me. And it, frankly, it was a departure for our site. It's not really what our site is is devoted to or known for. And, you know, just because it was this one particular story that I think needed to get to get told. And like I said before, it's, it felt like we were the right outlet to tell it. A key quote right at the top, you said a snowball became an avalanche. That's mm-hmm. literally what ended up happening. Now, as mm-hmm. a as a fan, you know, you're a blogger and you're obviously a, a fan of Buffalo sports. And I'm sure you've been reading the Buffalo news like all of us for years. Did this really take you back? Did it catch you by surprise? Everything that happened because it went down freaking quickly. Yeah, it did go down very quickly, and it, it it happened quickly. I think by design, um, from the Buffalo News's perspective, uh, they wanted to to get through it and have everyone kind of take you know take a breath, you know, rip the bandaid off, and and then move past it kind of all at once. And you know that's why they had all these meetings in, in a short time frame. They didn't want to you know spread it out over six months or something like that. They, you know, they had a meeting with the whole newsroom. And it wasn't just sports. It was the entire newsroom. Mm-hmm. And they pretty much said that anybody could take a buyout if they wanted it. And then they were just kind of surprised with how many sports guys took the buyout. But then when you go back and look, like, they took away Sully's column. They took away Bucky's column. Like, I just don't understand how you expect, you know, Jerry Sullivan, his age, when you're taking away his column, to just be like, yeah, cool. I'll stay here for forever. Like, you know, I just, there's, it, there was obviously an intent when they did the things that they did at the times that they did. And so it, you know, they shouldn't be surprised that that Jerry and Bucky left. I think the biggest shock for them was was Tim Graham because Tim didn't take a buyout. Right, he just left. Like he walked away, and uh, and joined the Athletic. And like he just, they hand delivered, you know, one of their best writers on staff to to a direct competitor. And it just, I think that's the one that caught them off guard the most. Absolutely. Now, John John Vogel, who covered the Sabers for sixteen years for the Buffalo News. He was the first to go following these meetings that you wrote about. And he's quoted in your piece as saying that he knew right away the bio was in his best interest. He didn't see any answers on how to fix things at the news. And he saw too many hockey writer buddies of his get fired at the drop of a dime. who didn't get an opportunity to get a buyout or anything like that. But now I will say this, and you wrote about this, and regarding the Buffalo News, the perception that all these guys were forced out, it's not really true. You pointed this out really good in the article. 
Bucky was actually offered John Slott covering the hockey beat when John left. Bob Desari, he wasn't initially, you know, bought on or anything like that. They reassigned him to splitting more time between his current job, which was as a deputy sports editor, and wanting him to start covering high school and college sports. You mentioned Sully. They wanted him to write, you know, they wanted him to work on writing more features and stuff like that, which, come on, man, that was never going to happen with him. And, and you you just, you explain why after, you know, nearly 30 years at the news and 62 years old, he's not going to depart from what he was doing. I don't blame him. And then you mentioned Tim, like I said, now he wasn't offered a buyout or, you know, he didn't, they didn't attempt to reassign him. He just left. He was completely disenchanted with all the departures. You know, you've been around the block a time or two and you've read these guys work for years your reaction to when it happened, does that kind of inspire you to want to write the story and tell it the way you did? Well, it inspired me to find out what was going on, at least. Uh, and and when that information wasn't really forthcoming anywhere, um, that's when I decided to reach out myself. And it, I think that was what I wanted the takeaway to be when people read it is like, oh, there's a lot of information here. And then they can form their opinions, you know, all, all the opinions. And, and really, actually, in the comments of Buffalo Rumblings, there's been a very good mix of opinions, people that, you know, didn't really like Bucky and Sully telling, telling that perspective. And then people that it did like them telling their perspective too. So it's obviously a a multifaceted issue. And I I was glad that we were able to get all the information we did. I mean, I think it's like 4,500 words. I've grabbed a lot of stuff into that one article. (laughs) Now everyone associates Bucky and Sully's like being kind of joined at the hip. You know what I mean? They did radio together or TV stuff together. They long time veterans. They're perceived as being grumpy writers, even if that's not completely true, but you know, I mean, that's the perception anyway, mm-hmm. but the reality is, and this is in your story here, that their departures were completely different in terms of tone because on Sully's, you know, in the case of Sully, it felt a lot more personal to him. He pointed out, you know, editor Mike Connolly pointed out that without saying it directly, but that Sully had seemed to grow tired of his own column. You know what I mean? And Sully took really big offense to that and that he was told that, you know, his voice was becoming, maybe not word for word, he's paraphrasing or I am one or the other, you know, that his voice was becoming bad for business. That was the theme with Sully. So with him, it felt personal. Whereas Bucky said, and you wrote about this in your story, he didn't leave because he was upset or mad at anything, but that he left because he didn't like the direction that the news was going in. Don't you think those are two really big ends of the spectrum on why Bucky and Sully left? Well, yeah. And I mean, even when I talked to to Jerry, I mean, J- Jerry's, like you said, been doing this for a long time and he's older than, than, um, than Bucky Gleason is. And right. so Jerry, if he doesn't get another job, he's probably going to be okay. You know, I think he's what, 62. Yeah. Um, but like Bucky is still looking for a job too. And so I think that also kind of, what's the right way to say this? I think it also alters how they're going to speak to me. Right. And like Jerry Sullivan just does not care. He's going, he can burn the house down if he wants to. Right. Whereas like, I mean, I think Bucky has to approach a little bit differently. He has to eventually get another gig somewhere, whether it's in writing or not, whether it's in sports or not, but like, he doesn't want to be the guy that, you know, burned every bridge on his way out of his last employer either. So I, I, I also understand like that, that played a role in, you know, a, who was willing to talk to me? All of them were willing to talk to me because they felt like they were wronged, but it also tells me that the guys that had another gig lined up were, I think a little bit more open um, or in Jerry Sullivan's case that didn't necessarily need another gig lined up versus the guys that were 
you know, still you know, trying to get another gig at some point. So I just, there, there's a lot, there's a lot of things to wade through when you actually read their quotes. One thing that I'm glad you did in this story. And again, I keep saying the word thorough because that's what it is, is you wrote about Kimberly Martin. Now she was at the news basically for a cup of coffee. And I, I believe she corresponded with you via email. There's a, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people out there when this was going on who were like, well, Kimberly Martin is the smartest person ever. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. She, I'm not saying she, she is very smart, so I'm not implying otherwise, but you know, she got off this the Titanic before it was too late and she just had a cup of coffee here said, what the fuck is going on here and skipped town. That's not the case at all. Like, and you write about this, and, you know, she was at the news for a few months and during that BN blitz failure stuff. And we're going to talk about that in a second as that started to happen. Not long after that, she went to the Washington post, but I think it was a good job by you and important to the story to contact her and get confirmation that she left, not because she was angry with the way things were going down at the Buffalo news in that room. You know what I mean? Right, exactly. And she, you know, she didn't, she's actually effusive in her praise of, of Mike Conley and the management at the mm-hmm. Buffalo news for bringing her in. I didn't know why she left so soon back. I remember when it happened and right. like all of us kind of said the same thing. And, yeah. and then you, then you take a step back and look at it from like, you know, from 9,000 feet or whatever up. And, um, and you're like, Oh, she's going from the Buffalo news to the Washington post. I guess this makes sense. Even though, and she said this herself, it was, it was difficult for her to leave because she was the only female, a black female columnist at any major newspaper in the country. And so she went to the Washington post to became a reporter again. So she lost that kind of platform um, that she had worked to get, but she was at the Washington post. So she was able to, to justify that trade off. And, you know, she, she did not say anything negative at all about the Buffalo news, but at the same time, as we talked about earlier, like she also is looking for, you know, her next big break. Maybe, maybe that takes her away from the Washington post. Maybe that gives her a promotion at the Washington post. So she might be a little bit more, I don't know, close to the vest with, with some of her comments. Sure. Understandable as well. Mm -hmm. You wrote at length about BN blitz, which in my opinion is the biggest reason that me and you are having this conversation right now, because no matter how you look at it, it's been an unmitigated disaster in every way. In the article, we talk about the Buffalo News, according to a, a memo distributed to the staff anyway, that the Buffalo News would need about 83,000 total digital subscriptions to pay for that newsroom. And according to Sully anyway, they only had between three and 4,000. Mm-hmm. Well, simple math says, if you're charging three bucks a month, because that's what they're charging for BN Blitz, you know, you're 81,000 subscribers short of your goal. That's like close to a quarter million dollars a month, man. So, yeah, you know what I'm saying? Your story seems like it was just chaos when it came to that. What are your thoughts on that with the BN Blitz and his digital subscriptions, which even on the on the news side, you know, they can't even defend that. It's been a flop. Yeah, it has been. And uh, that the 3000 number might actually be a little bit high to be uh, to be perfectly honest with you. But uh, I it doesn't surprise me that they're that far away from their digital subscriber break-even number. Um, they still have a very good paper circulation uh, compared to other newspapers around the country. So mm-hmm. as long as they still have the print newspaper going out, they don't need to be at whatever it is, 83 or 86,000 to be at that break-even number. They were trying something new with the BN Blitz. It didn't work out for them. Um, I, I don't necessarily think that it was a bad idea to try that, but I think Sullivan said it the best when he said that we were creating a Bill's fan site and people yeah. aren't going to pay money for that. Like there's tons of Bills fan sites out there, including ours at Buffalo Rumblings, Good that ones. you know don't charge three dollars. And 
it's not like we got more in-depth reporting about the bills because if they had in-depth reporting about the bills, they put it in the newspaper and like you could still access it. So it just, it, it didn't work out because I think of what they put behind the paywall. Yeah. Sully said it perfect. It's, it's not a newspaper. It's basically a bill site. That's, mm-hmm. that's what it is. It, literally, that's what it is. And, you know, I don't really think that's an opinion. It's a fact. They're charging money yeah. purely for, for bill stuff, you know, and, your story's unbiased and you're sticking the facts and what people are telling you. Of course, this is a podcast, so I'm not going <laughs> to not offer my thoughts. I think the problem with the Buffalo News is that they need to be all in with paid subscriptions or not have them at all. I don't think anything they do will help them reach the numbers they want if if fans are paying to read sports content, if it's only for the bills. If you're going to have that paywall, that subscription, you better have Sabre stuff on there, high school, college, everything. You know what I mean? If you're going to charge, go all in. Or do you think maybe I'm wrong? Again, this is an opinion of my opinion. So this isn't a fact. That's nothing to do with your story. But what's your opinion on that? If I'm wrong, let me know. I mean, John Vogel said the same thing. He's like, you know, there's tons of places to get NFL content. Why don't we put some of the Sabre stuff behind the the paywall? Because there's not a ton of places to get Sabre's content. There's not, you know, ESPN isn't covering the Sabres every day. Like they have Mike Rodak or... Um, you know, even while well, Matthew Fairburn, when he's with Syracuse.com, like, I mean, they don't have like all these guys producing all this different content for the Sabres. So if you want to put that behind the paywall, that makes sense. And when you look at the athletic model, like they have, you know, Bill stuff, Sabre stuff, but they also have all the national information that mm-hmm. they have on there behind that paywall. When you're charging pretty much the same money as the athletic is for just that Buffalo Bills fan content, I don't think fans are going to see the value of that, but but when you start going beyond that and doing things that they can't get anywhere else, which is what the athletic does, I think that makes a little bit more sense. I'm personally not a fan of, you know, paywall websites and things like that. Ours is probably never going to be a paywall site in any way, shape or form. But I, I totally get why people are doing that and why revenue needs to be generated from readers in order for that to be a full-time job. It's not a full-time job for me. I get that. So I, I, I see both sides of it. I don't know if I would pay. Well, I, I know I did pay for the BN Blitz um, for a long, long time, but I don't know. I don't know why necessarily people would actually do that now. I just don't. Right. Like, well, I don't know what they're offering behind that paywall that is that's worth the the money every month. It's not. And I and I'm a subscriber to BN Blitz right now because first and foremost, I'm a fan of some of the guys. You know, uh-huh. I'm support. Yeah. I feel like I'm supporting them. I, I Jay Skursky. I I like Jay. I've had him on the show. Tim, I consider him a friend. Well, he just left, you know what I mean? But he, he mm-hmm. was writing for Buffalo News. So that's probably the biggest reason why I've been a subscriber, more to support the people that I like as opposed to thinking that it's justified and worth it because it's not. I just don't think it is. And I don't think any Bills fan is going to tell you that that it is. Not at this point anyway. They're going to have to do more stuff. But again, that's opinion. Let's get back quickly here as we start to wrap up to your actual story because that's why I got you on. I thought another important part of your piece was addressing rumors that guys were being told to stop being critical in their coverage. But you mm-hmm. wrote this. You said no one had told Gleason or Sullivan or anyone else that you spoke with to lighten up in their criticism or to take it easier on the two big local sports teams. Management and the writers were all clear on that. Is it important to know that at least these guys were not told? And trust me, like you said, Sully's got no problem grinding his axe in other areas of mm-hmm. what thing happened. So, for him to even admit that he wasn't told, hey, tone down the criticism. You're being too hard on the Bills or Sabres. There were rumors swirling about that. That's why I made sure I asked every single person that I interviewed about it. 
um, and, and all of them were were crystal clear. Nobody even hedged a little bit. Um, I think the biggest hedge came from like Bob DeCesare, who said something like, well, maybe we didn't tell them to be less critical, but maybe we sold them to elevate their criticism, which is completely different. And, you know, that's why he made the distinction, too. So I, I just I didn't see that any. I didn't see any pressure, at least overt pressure from the Pagulas. I didn't see any of that pressure from, you know, the people in charge of the Buffalo News. Sully had said to the regarding the story that the paper, you know, they lost a quarter million in business with printing. From what his understanding is, the news lost a quarter of a million worth of business with the Pagulas at one point. He heard it was Sabres programs. It came to his intention at that time. That's what he was quoted as saying. From the very beginning here, when Bucky and Sully left, okay, there have been rumors that Pagula Enterprises, and by rumors, very, very, very unsubstantiated rumors in a publication, mm-hmm. I think it was called The Public, that came out in the first, and they they kind of retracted it in a later article, but their original piece addressed rumors that maybe Pagula Enterprises had something to do with that, you know, pulling out printing and stuff like that that would cost the Buffalo News thousands and thousands of dollars because of the negativity of guys like like sully do you believe it uh, maybe <laughs> like the 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 pagulas can pull their their printing contract with the buffalo news for pretty much any reason they could have found somebody cheaper they you know you're never going to find that smoking gun um you know if somebody had it i'm probably i'm sure i probably would have seen it but it's not like you know tier pagula is writing a memo drop you know printing services from the buffalo news because they were mean to me like it just that paper trail doesn't exist they lost a two hundred fifty thousand dollar contract um printing sabers programs one of the things that the buffalo news has done over the years is um picked up uh, printing services because they have all the printers and stuff like that so they print like you know local editions of you know out of town newspapers that are national papers like i don't like the wall street journal or new york times or things like that mm-hmm. you know so they do like this printing service and and one of the things that they were doing was the buffalo sabers programs and that they stopped doing that that was a big chunk of money and one of the advertising execs said that to sullivan in a newsroom meeting and that shouldn't happen um i think pretty much everybody that i could ask about that would have agreed to that 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 should not happen uh, you know an advertising guy shouldn't be telling a columnist that your opinions cost the paper money because then that's always in the back of their head when they write a negative column. And that's not how you should be doing opinion pieces. But I don't think it was an overt pressure from the Pagulas that said, you need to drop Bucky and Sully because I just, I don't see the Pagulas playing that game. Um, you know, they're, they're above the Buffalo news. They don't need the Buffalo news anymore. So, you know, they've, they've got their own websites. They've got you know, Twitter. They've got their own PR people. They can put stuff out if they really want it to, to all be, you know, butterflies and rainbows and stuff like that. They just don't need it. So I don't think it was over pressure from the Pagulas. Perhaps my favorite thing about the story that you did is that the public perception is these guys who departed the news were all forced out, or even if they weren't forced out, that they're the good guys. And the Buffalo News Sports Department is this evil empire. That's not completely true. And you, and you made that very clear in your story. From the Buffalo News side, they are hiring. They're hiring a hockey writer. They're hiring a features writer. They're hiring, a, you know, a deputy sports editor, a couple of digital things. So it's not like they're folding the tent and calling us a day. You know what I mean? Right. But they also aren't hiring two new columnists to replace Bucky and Sully. True. And so they're, even if they are going to be doing opinion pieces and columns from the guys that are already there, they're going to be down manpower hours. And so I asked about that and he didn't seem, uh, Mike Conley, the editor didn't seem concerned about that, but that's, I mean, that's a reality. They're down, they're going to be down two staff members, two guys in the room 
Where do you see the future for the Buffalo News based on what you wrote and who you've talked to? How do you see things playing out in the coming months? Well, in the coming months, I don't think you're going to see a whole lot of change from where it is now. Um, I think you might end up seeing them. What's the right way to say this? They're they're probably going to regret all of those people leaving at the same time just because of the headache it creates and having to hire all those people at the same time. But I don't think it's necessarily going to hurt the you know, the journalism aspect of the Buffalo news. I, th- I think their bills coverage is going to be fine. I think their savers coverage is going to be fine. Um, it, it, it probably has more to do with like the, how those people live their day-to-day lives, how they interact with other people at work, you know, the morale that's actually in the room. I don't think for us on the outside, we're going to see a huge change once the season actually starts and they have all these new people on staff. I think you're going to see great competition between the news and the athletic. I think you kind of saw a little bit of it this weekend with the NHL draft. Harrington mm-hmm. on the Buffalo news side is pounding out stories. And so's John, who's now working at the athletic. The timing just weird too, you know, it's because it's like, why would you feed them John and Tim? I mean, I'm sure that wasn't their intention, but it's essentially what they did. They create, they helped create the competition that they now face. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, Mike Conley said, he's like, we wanted people that were going to be all in. And so uh, his implication by that is if these guys weren't going to buy into what we were doing, we're glad they're gone. You know, that's his, that was his implication. And, you know, it's it has to do with the 24-7-ness of all of it. It has to do with, you know, John Vogel said he felt like he couldn't even take a shower without, you know, being worried that something was going to happen for the like the 10 minutes he was, you know, getting ready for work and all this other stuff. Like he was just constantly worried he was going to miss something. And for the people that consume news on a 24 seven basis, you know, if you, if something happens and you hear about it on Twitter and you go do a Google search for it and there's not something from the Buffalo news, you're kind of like, Oh man, they're behind everybody else. And so like, they're starting to feel that pressure. Even the reporters that have been doing this for a long time of the, you know, the instant, you know, you don't file a story and go home and like read it in the paper like 24 hours later or whatever it is. Like, I mean, you have to be 24 minutes later now. And that's just a big change for, for a lot of these guys. Great stuff. Matt Warren, everyone follow Matt on Twitter at Matt Rich Warren. And of course, check out Buffalo Rumblings. Even beyond this story, if you're a Buffalo Bills fan, it's an incredible site. You need to visit it all the time. They got great Bills content. Matt, thanks for popping on. Great job again. Nice to talk to you. And I look forward to talking to you during the Bill season. We're going to actually talk about some football. Okay. All right. That'll do it for this episode. Thanks again to ESPN's Olivia Harlan for her time today. Not just one of the most talented sideline reporters in the biz, but also one of the nicest. I want to wish her continued success in her career and also her upcoming marriage. I'm very excited for her. Also, thanks to Matt Warren from Buffalo Rumblings for coming on and talking about his excellent story on the at least temporary destruction of the Buffalo News Sports Department. Great stuff there. Coming up on Thursday's show, I have Democrat and Chronicle longtime veteran and the man some affectionately or at least semi-affectionately call him on Twitter, the bitter Twitter himself, Sal Mayorana will be in the house talking his career Buffalo Bills, Yanks, Cubs, all kinds of other stuff. That should be a lot of fun. Of course, if you haven't done so already, I don't know what you're waiting for. Please head over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever the hell it's called now, 
and subscribe to this podcast. It's quick, it's easy, it's free, and new episodes will get sent right to your phone or computer automatically. You can also subscribe on Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and all kinds of other platforms, including Spotify for the first time, by the way. I'm pretty excited about that. So go ahead and do that. You can follow me on Twitter at Pamoran Tweets. Have yourself a nice, safe, fun week. Talk to you guys again on Thursday. Peace.